1: So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Paola Serafini from the University of Leicester about her new book, Performance Action. So welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks very much. Thank you for having me.
1: Um, This, uh, I think, is a a fascinating book, which is really kind of important for our our contemporary moment um, because it's a book that thinks through the kind of relationship between art and politics, which obviously, given the, you know, Terrible political conditions uh, prevailing across many parts of the world. Um, I think it's a kind of really crucial um, intervention to understand this relationship. And the book focuses in particular on um, activism uh, in the art world and kind of political um, activism or activism for for social change. And I wonder if you could like introduce the book by saying what got you interested in this um, particular area. You know, were, were you Sort of uh, practicing as an artist was it something you've been long interested in, or did you just come to it as a kind of like a field of research that you thought would be interesting?
0: Sure. So um, this all started about eight years ago. Uh, I was doing my master's at Goldsmiths, and um, yeah, 2010, and that's when the protest started. Um, you know, student protests against the rising fees, but also um, protests against austerity cuts. Um, groups like UK Uncut. And I got involved in some of these protests. And at the time, I was thinking through what I was going to write for my thesis. And I really wanted to do something with arts and politics. And at the beginning, I thought I was going to go for socially engaged art or critical art, something like that. And then my supervisor said, why don't you write about the stuff you're doing that's way more interesting? And that kind of clicked. And that's when I thought, yeah, actually, it's stuff that's happening in the street. That's it's more interesting than the stuff that's happening in the exhibition halls. Um, so yeah, I wrote my dissertation on on performance in the context of political protests in 2010 2011. Um, but I felt this kind of frustration with the literature at the time when I was doing when I was writing the thesis. I felt that all of the stuff that came from art theory and art history that was looking at political art uh, was quite limited. Um, let's say to a discursive um, aspect of these practices. And then I was reading some philosophy and aesthetics and politics, but I was like. I need something else. I need to, you know, Mm -hmm. understand how these things work on the inside. like, I'm not just interested in what political messages artists or activists are putting out there. I want to know how it works. I want to know how it works in practice. Mm -hmm. Like, what are the processes behind this? Um, And that kind of motivated me to, to do a PhD on this. And so I went from a background in art history and then anthropology to do a PhD with a sociologist as a supervisor. And then he introduced me to all of the social movement theory And that's when I I kind of realized, okay so this has to be an interdisciplinary framework and it has to include art theory and it has to include social movement theory. And then while looking at at what kinds of practices were were taking place in the UK at the moment, because the book is quite UK focused, um, I decided to also include some performance theory because most of the practices were performance based in some way or the other. Um, And then, well, yeah, I, I became quite involved in in some of these practices, having had some experience before um, and always making art, but never professionally. um, I became quite involved in some of these groups. um, And so it was quite an ethnographic uh, and participatory approach that the book came in. some of the groups I'm still involved with today. And um, yeah, the the relationships are still ongoing. Sometimes the relationships of co-production, of knowledge, of text, of performances.
1: I mean, you you get a really... Rich sense of of the really wide ranging um, set of theories that um, contribute to the book and kind of un- underpin the book's um, approach to understanding um, art activism and I wonder actually like the the kind of the big question would be would be pinning down what this thing is mm-hmm. um, I wonder if you could say a bit about kind of what art activism is. Um, you know, as a kind of like an, an object to study before we sort of think through both, you know, the concrete examples and um, and your sort of own position?
0: Sure. So so that, I think, funny enough, is the most difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? What is it not? Um, so I, I start with Lucy Lippert's definition. Um, she gave a definition of actually activist art in the 1980s, and she was talking about it as Art that is politically engaged, that it can operate within or outside of the art world, that is not tied to a specific genre, um, that is defined mostly by its function, and that is quite process based. So I like those ideas, you know, the the function and the process. Um, In this book, I use the term art activism instead of activist art, and this was a deliberate choice, um, you know, me coming from a different language. Perhaps I, I I view language in a different way, but I thought activist art is two nouns. No, sorry, activist art is uh, um, an adjective and a noun. Art activism is two nouns. So when we talk about art activism, we're not putting more weight on one or the other. And I like that. I think that expresses the kind of in-betweenness and the ambiguity Mm -hmm. a lot better than artistic activism or activist art. Um, So that was a choice, but then, My difference uh, with Lippard is that I am concentrating mostly on expressions that originate from outside of the art world, outside of the institutions. So a lot of the groups that I look at, they engage with our institutions. They they stage performances inside of them. They talk to them. They engage with them. They protest some of their practices. But they originate from, from a different environment, which is the environment of grassroots activism. Um, And I was interested in looking at that more than looking at um, artists politicising. So I guess art activism would be um, art that engages in political action in a broad sense. Uh, But in this case, I'm concentrating mostly on art that has some sort of relation with social movements, uh, instead of emerging directly from a tradition of art making.
1: That... um what do you call it, sort of in-betweenness makes me think of of your own kind of role as, I guess, you know, kind of creator, academic researcher, activist. Um, and I wonder if you could say like a little bit about that, because um, as you said, you know, kind of striking the balance between activism, art, you know, not putting the weight on one particular thing. There is also the kind of that element of you yourself as a researcher. And it'd be great to hear about, I, I guess, you know, maybe like your sort of experience of, of of doing the work as well,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. I guess it was a really interesting experience, um, because it was it was so different with each of the groups. Um, some of the groups I did long term um, ethnographic work with; others uh, I did participant observation, perhaps for a few a few times, or I did a few interviews. Uh, I attended some of their events, but I didn't get as involved. So my position was very different in each case. There's not one position as if I was doing a long-term ethnographic study with one group, one community. So I had to think about this constantly, and I had to think about it a lot when I was writing. And sometimes there will be you know, early drafts of my work, or even I think now in the book where my position changes from they to we quite a bit. And some people find it confusing, but I was like... This is the only way that I can write about this. When I was part of something, I have to write we because I cannot really distance myself from it. It wouldn't be an honest representation to say that I was not part of that. But when I was not part of something, I have to say they because I cannot suddenly put myself in an action if I wasn't part of that process. And I think that 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 shifting positionality is okay as long as we're honest about it. Doing doing ethnography of this sort, um, you know, researching something that you are making, uh, something that you are building with others, um, is quite challenging and it's quite difficult. And a lot of people don't don't like it. Um, sometimes when I present it on this project, they're like, mm, "But aren't you a bit biased?" Or "How can you be objective? How can you be critical of this if you're part of it?" Well, you know, obviously there are limitations to to an inside perspective. But if I was studying this from the outside. There's so much that I couldn't have done, um, so I guess it was about just being constantly reflective of that position, um, also reminding um, people of my role as a researcher. You know, one of the things that was um, was quite crucial for me was um, that curatorial, I guess, criteria that I had to apply to which information I was going to include in the write-up of the work and which I was not, having kind of you know access to so much information. And thinking about is any of this going to damage anyone if I publish it? And I think that's a common concern with people starting social movements.
1: Yeah, and I mean the, the, the kind of tensions you talked about there are tensions that people um, who you were co-producing with were were kind of living anyway. You know, in terms of the balance between uh, things like political commitments, aesthetic uh, values. And one way of you know kind of getting straight into these tensions, which I think you know kind of run throughout the book, is by talking about um, some of the projects you worked with. So I, I, it'd be useful to know what the kind of like art not oil umbrella or, <laughs> or kind of organisation is, and then maybe um, we can come back to a couple of little uh, examples. You know, one. About uh, Shell and, and using kind of sort of music, uh, the other, you know, kind of more theatre and performance, protesting BP. So, yeah, what, what was sort of Art Not Oil?
0: Sure. So, um, Art Not Oil is a coalition of different groups, um, including artist collectives, um, grassroots organisations, and NGOs, and they protest um, oil sponsorship of the arts in the UK. Uh, the coalition emerged out of a campaign that was called Arnold Oil and the campaign's been active for over 10 years now. Um, And yeah, and and it's been a campaign that's been targeted different high-profile UK institutions and events that take BP sponsorship with the argument that um, BP is an an unethical company, that they are lobbying against um, legislation that would tackle climate change, that they contribute to climate change, that they have been found guilty of um, Uh, human rights and environmental abuses uh, or have been uh, taken to court for these issues Um, and therefore cultural institutions should not engage with them in sponsorship deals because they're giving them social licence to operate. so that's basically what the campaign uh, does and what they stand for
1: And what about the kind of specific projects you were involved with so you you mentioned the BP thing Um, I was really struck in the the second chapter about um, how a kind of (laughs) What sounded like quite a fun performance, actually, um, to protest BP uh, raised kind of big questions about things like, say, participation and the meaning of participation. So could you talk me through BP or not BP? Sure.
0: So um, BP or not BP is one of the um, groups that's part of the Art and Oil Coalition. And they started actually um, with another name. They were called Reclaim Shakespeare Company because they would um, jump on stage before Royal Shakespeare Company performances um, to protest BP sponsorship. And they would kind of, you know, do Shakespearean inspired um, performances and people would applaud and, and stuff like that. And then that deal came to an end. So they moved on to other institutions such as the British Museum. And that's when I um, joined the group. initially. I joined them uh, for fun, and then I started including some of the stuff in the research. But I was part of other groups that I was researching. Anyway, so um, this group uh, has a kind of, we can say, agitprop um, street theater aesthetic and approach to work. Um, sometimes the interventions are very small, uh, and they are not advertised, and they're not, you know, publicly um, advertised. And sometimes they are big participatory performances. Uh, they're shared on social media weeks in advance and people are invited to join. So one of these bigger performances was um, the Vikings one. Uh, at the time, BP was sponsoring a Vikings exhibition at the British Museum. So BP and BP tends to do this thing of kind of getting inspiration from the things that BP sponsors uh, and responding with performances that take from those themes. Um, So what we announced was that we were going to go, and here, see, I say we because I was involved in the planning of that performance, that we were going to bring in a Viking longship into the museum. Obviously, the museum freaked out because they thought we were actually going to try to bring a huge, you know, prop or boat into the museum. But what happened was that we came up with a way of making a boat out of human bodies. So people knew how to kind of where to meet, at what time, they were instructed to, you know, print and make their own Viking hats and props. Everyone met at the museum at a particular time. There were some um, barriers and obstacles. Some people didn't make it in on the day. Someone dressed as Thor got arrested and then released. Um, Yeah, that's a funny, funny story. Um, But then eventually the performance carried on and uh, people were invited to join in. And then this massive longship was created with human bodies and then just like a piece of cloth that surrounded the whole, the whole structure. Uh, and there was singing and there was um, a slow kind of ceremonial walk um, across the Great Hall. And then there was a more ritualistic um, element to the performance and it was quite participatory. And actually one of them, of the really fun, aspects of this performance was that towards the end people who were participating who are not regular participants of the group just kind of made it their own and they continued with it and they kept singing and then we went outside of the of the museum and things just continued organically Uh, so I think that was a really good example of of the potential for participation at the same time however um, one of the things that I talk about in in this chapter um, is how participation can can also have its limits. Often when we read the the literature coming from art theory, uh, participatory art is kind of seen as this unproblematically amazing thing. And you know, any performance or any artwork that includes an element of participation is in itself good and is in itself inactive social change. But actually, you know, and this has been pointed out by some people, such as um Julian Stalabras or um grandcaster uh participation is not inherently good it depends on the type of participation that we've been well claire Bishop as well has has kind of crit- critiqued um Bouillot's, uh, frame of participatory art um participation is not good in itself it always occurs in a context and there are power relations around that participation so I think we need to kind of be um, mm-hmm. aware of these of these power relations that surround participation and see okay what can we achieve with this be a bit more realistic about it. Um, so yeah, in that chapter, I, I look at this particular case, and I use it to raise some questions about what can participation do, what are its limits, and also um, how participation can allow other kinds of things to happen. So for instance, prefiguration, uh, how participation can allow us uh, to think about other ways of art making and other ways of just thinking about art in general.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's an issue that goes right the way through the book actually and um even as you're explaining that i was thinking forward to later on in the book where you talk about you know the kind of limits of of emboldening people which is one of the kind of key terms or you know the question of whether public art itself can actually be kind of you know kind of critical um in in any way and i think before we get into that because i think those two are really um kind of useful and an interesting threads to be to be sort of unpicked. I wonder if you could say a little bit about the balance between, crudely speaking, like the art and the <laughs> politics. And obviously, you know, you've mentioned art activism and not wanting either term to be kind of carrying the weight of the, uh, of the practice. Um, and this, I guess, is through the story of, of Shell Out Sounds, um, you know, and, and how they kind of balance uh, aesthetics and, and, and politics.
0: Sure. So, so that chapter—that's some chapter, um, chapter one—that looks at the collective identity of Shellout Sounds, and Shellout Sounds is a choir that's also part of the Art Art coalition, and they used to sing um, outside and sometimes inside the Royal Festival Hall, um, where the Shell sponsored classical season concerts were taking place, and that chapter. Takes um, the concept of collective identity, which comes from new social movement theory, um, and it's been developed by people like Alberto Melucci. And what what got me to to think about collective identity in relation to shell out sounds was that I saw a lot of contradiction in the way that people within the same group talked about what they did. So some people would say we are an activist group, and we use art to make this point because art's strategic art allows us to get into spaces that otherwise we wouldn't get into. Uh, art allows you to confuse the police. So it is a very good way of doing things. And other people would be like, we're artists and we we have a cause. We are committed artists. And other people maybe say, we are a community choir um, and we are an environmental community choir. So, so that kind of caught my eye. And I started asking questions about this. So, you know, what are your views on art? And then and then realized that some people had um, a more, we could say, pragmatic approach to it, and others had another vision of art as inherently transformative. So art doesn't need to be disruptive or it doesn't have to be in the form of direct action to make change. It can just touch people through, you know, the aesthetic experience. And sometimes these different visions would clash when, when it came down to planning an action. I also realized that there were people that were more invested in the artistic side of the choir. So, you know, very interested in getting solo parts uh, or very, very invested into making, you know, good harmonies and a very solid and good quality performance. And others are more like, no, actually, we have to be really disruptive. We have to get in here. We have to do this now. We have to do it like this. So so that made me wonder about not only the collective identity. I was like, what is the collective identity of this group? and you know how those processes um, constantly negotiated, uh, but also it, it made me begin to form this idea that the aesthetic and the political are in constant tension, not just in collective identity processes, but in actually every other aspect of, of their practice. So um, I started thinking about how in participation, for instance, um, sometimes participation can be something that groups do because they believe in participatory art. So we can say that it's tied to the more um aspect of the practice. Whereas in other moments, it can be a strategic thing. Bringing a lot of people together uh, to one place can be uh, very spectacular and can create um, a big effect. It can create... kind of eye-catching media images Um, or sometimes it can be because we're looking for a particular aesthetic effect. Um, So yeah, what I started thinking was that in practice these things were always negotiated. You know, we can we can get into the theoretical debates and perhaps say that aesthetic and politics are not separate. That Sometimes uh, we are talking about the same thing but actually in practice when we look at how people talk about what they do, when we look at how they make decisions, these things tend, tend to be intentional in every aspect of the practice, from the planning to the execution to the experience.
1: There's also the question of, of, of power, I think, as, as well, because um, those tensions, the aesthetic experience, the practice of politics, um, at the front of the book you, you kind of gesture towards um, the importance of power relationships, and then you really bring this to to a head. I think in in later on with the example of uh, of shake or, or, or voices that shake uh, this this youth program uh, that you write about, and I, I think you know it, it'd be great to kind of hear an extension of that um, aesthetics politics uh, tension or interrelationship by bringing in this kind of like question of. Um, of power, you know, both how, you know, kind of participants can be, uh, you know, given voice, but at the same time, how there are kind of like important um, tensions um, within uh, programmes, even where they seem to be kind of, you know, trying to um, foster a sense of kind of equality or, or putting people on the on a shared footing.
0: Yeah, I think what's really interesting about Shake um, and Shake is this arts and politics um, programme for young people is that it made me rethink what activism is and what we think about when we think about activism. Um, so Shake is a program that um, gets young people together. Uh, now that the format is changing, but at, at the time of research, it was um, two five-day courses in a year. And it provided young people with a, a space to discuss political and social issues and then um, some training on poetry or filmmaking or zine making, um, the skills for for expressing themselves through art and then the opportunity to share the art in, in public showcases at places like Richmix. Um But Shake facilitators always talk about what they did as emboldening, not empowering, because empowering mm-hmm. implies that you are the holder of the power and that you are the one who decides when and how to relinquish that power or to bestow it upon someone else. What's emboldening is this idea that people have the power within them and this is a space where, where, you know, a space that facilitates that power to come through. Um, but again, there were even tensions between um, people different facilitators of the program at the time, some of whom believed that um, a young person of color who is marginalized in a society like this one, writing a very striking poem about racism in the UK, that's activism in itself. Whereas another facilitator once said, well, not really. It's art. It's really good art. It's powerful art. But if it doesn't go on to the collective level, then it's not activism. And that made me think about, you know, what we think about activism, how our ideas about activism are also conditioned by sometimes, you know, racist, um, gender biased, ableist mindsets uh, that think, you know, the idea of the activist is a very, you know, active, usually young white man uh, throwing something at someone uh, wearing a black hoodie. You know, yeah. that's what people imagine <sighs> when they think about activism, um, and how activism it has to be contextualized and how art as a tool for activism also needs to be contextualized. Um, so that was a really good experience um, and uh, a really interesting chapter to write because I think it was very much, uh, even though you know the way that academia works, I ended up publishing it, but but it was a collective um, knowledge production process.
1: Actually, we, we might extend that, um, that sense of tension um, into uh broadly speaking kind of queer politics issues um and the fourth chapter kind of brings up the tension directly between the kind of you know um the personal being political but that having um different or or perhaps you know a kind of um a complex set of implications um within art activism and again you know as as we've done with with the The other examples, I wonder if you could talk me through left-front art um, as a really kind of great example of both, you know, that kind of moment of uh, the personal political, but also actually some of the, you know, the balance and and, and tension within um, this particular kind of art activism.
0: Yeah, left-front art is um, a network of uh, queer radical artists. It's an international network, but it's based mostly in the UK. And um, what's really interesting about about this case that I look at in that chapter is that Left Front Art has a lot of connections with Unite, the union. And that's because some of the people that are part of that network also work for Unite. Um, So what they try to do is to build bridges between uh, the trade union movement and the trade union environment and the queer art scene. And... They, they try to do this through organizing events. Sometimes they bring artists into the trade union space. Sometimes they organize things um, in collaboration or outside the union space, but in collaboration with, with trade unions. Sometimes they organize events where they talk about um, austerity issues, for instance, but they they invite queer artists to, to take part of that um, and to cover a wide range of political issues. Um, so I was talking to one of the activists from Unite that was... Um, telling me a bit about the difficulties in doing this work. Um, I said that difficulties came um, from both sides. Um, On the one hand, uh, queer artists are not used to being part of unions, he said, because of the kind of labour that they do. Uh, Also, they don't trust the culture of the unions. They think that it's not inviting for them. That's quite traditional. Uh, That's very male and heteronormative. On the other hand, At the union, sometimes there has been a bit of resistance when they, for instance, look at the the photo of an artist that's that's supposed to perform next week. And they're like, why do they have so many piercings? You know, Uh things that are shocking to them. (laughs) Um, So there is a building bridges exercise. And the way in which this is done, um, one of the ways in which this is done is is through the personal. Well, I, I suggest that it's done through the personal as political. A lot of the performances and events that Left Front Art organise um, draw from this idea of, of building connections um, through, through opening up, through the vulnerable, uh, through showing that vulnerability, um, the personal, personal stories. Uh, so it so involves telling personal stories, uh, sharing moments of, of trauma, uh, but also um, the, the kind of simplicity of, of using performance as a medium to connect with someone. Now, this can sometimes be uh, very effective in connecting with an audience, in making someone rethink their position, but it can also be what causes um, the bridges to shut down. So naked performances, for instance, which is something that a lot of queer artists uh, in left front art network do, uh, are something that sometimes does not sit well with uh, the trade unionists. So it's a thing of kind of pushing and pulling and trying to create those bridges trying to find common ground but it's interesting that sometimes the same mm. um aesthetics and the same approach to art making that can open up those spaces mm. can be the same one that shuts it down
1: I, I wonder if we might take a moment to kind of think um, i was going to say about the good news but that that really isn't the isn't the right term but obviously as an academic text um, you've got you know the tricky task of navigating both the ethnographic material and the kind of broader um theoretical um landscape that that you're trying to engage with, but in many ways actually you're also telling a story of of i guess kind of success in changing the art world um and you know art not oil um even if we just take it purely on the kind of like um level of raising uh, public consciousness um was really successful i think both in terms of you know kind of uh, art world discussions about sponsorship practitioner discussions but then also you know kind of in, in media debates um and i wonder if you you might kind of yeah give me a bit of good news uh, in <laughs> terms of the impact of our oil um on the kind of the, the art world and, and its institutions
0: yeah, yeah, I think I think the campaign has come a long way. Um, some institutions have dropped BP sponsorship, such as State. Um, BP has claimed that it was because they didn't have enough money, but that didn't really make sense because they're still sponsoring others. Um, There were some festivals that also dropped sponsorship, and I think it's generated a lot of discussions in places like um, the Museum Association conferences. Uh, You know, ethical sponsorship um, is an issue that people now feel like they have to engage with. And also, you know, at a time where climate change is more and more present in the media agenda, uh, I think it's important that that connection has been established. That you know who is causing climate change, uh, who is responsible for for climate change. Um, so, so it's both things that are coming hand by hand by hand, basically.
1: In terms of that, um, yeah, I don't know what you call it. You know, positive moment. Um, what would your kind of um, advice be uh, in terms of kind of art activism? Um, You know, partially in terms of kind of, um, is it enough um, in terms of creating these kind of dialogues or uh, raising consciousness? Or are there kind of, you know, um, significant risks or definite things that, you know, art activists really shouldn't be doing? Um,
0: Yeah, there are risks um, and there are, I think, funnily enough, my advice comes with an element of risk, <laughs> and this is because I think that right now what we need is more connection, more allyship, uh, more transnational and international connections. Um, I am from Argentina, and uh, actually my current project is, is in, based in Argentina, but I've been living here for a long time, and I'm looking at for instance, environmental issues in both places. And there is a lack of connection and um, collaborative working. Uh, People are approaching sometimes the same topics, but separately and in different ways. And we need to build those bridges and work together and employ a variety of tactics to address such pressing issues such as the rise of the right or climate change or extractivism. But along with that comes an element of risk sometimes, which is that when when we take on um, advocating for someone else, um, telling the story of someone else, there is always a risk of misrepresentation. Uh, And I've seen that a lot in the UK with campaigns that sometimes try to do solidarity work. But the way in which they they do that... um, is not fairly representing those realities and those voices and that is sometimes simply because it is very difficult to fully understand and then be able to uh, represent and mediate the stories of someone living in another part of the world uh, where you've never been and where you don't really know the reality. So I think that it is important to express solidarity, it is important not to um, just talk about you know what BP is doing to polar bears but to talk about what the effects of extraction of fossil fuels are doing to some people right now. But in order to do that, we need to first form those links, first create that understanding, that transnational solidarity and understanding, and then find the creative and the artistic tools to uh, do those interventions here in the UK or here in whichever side of power we are in the Global North. Um, So I think, you know, it's always trial and error. It's very difficult um, to work outside of your of your area of comfort, of, you know, of what you do, and what you know. But I think right now when we're looking at these processes that are happening in different parts of the world, but that are all connected in terms of who's gaining power and what's happening with that, we need to work um, together.
1: I mean, that, that's a, a really positive. Is it? I feel like it didn't sound very positive. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it is. And also um, it sort of struck me that the book actually gestures towards, you know, albeit, um, you know, in a kind of very nuanced and caveated way, the idea that making connections might in itself be mm-hmm. an aesthetic uh, act, you know, that making connections might be the thing that we think about as as the art yeah. almost. Um, and as you say, you know, the risk is that given what we know about the unequal power structures of uh, the art world in Britain, the United States, and Western Europe, you know, the, the risks of misrepresentation are, are really kind of, you know, kind of grave. Um, and actually, yeah, you know, kind of making connections might be a um, a good, a good banner to, uh, you know, to kind of drive forward both aesthetic production and um, political change, uh, which, again, as you mentioned, we <laughs> really need right now. <laughs> Um, in terms of, of that uh, kind of concluding point, is this the sort of stuff you're working on now or have you kind of, you know, um, finished up the, the question of, of art activism and have you moved on to something sort of uh, completely different?
0: Um, I haven't moved on completely, um, but I've kind of changed my my focus, I'd say. So my current project is um, a project that looks at creative and cultural resistance to extractivism in Argentina. And by extractivism, I mean uh, the economic model that's based on intensive and extensive extraction of natural resources for export. Um, And it's a model that's been adopted by many countries in in the global South, especially in Latin America. So what I'm looking at is how um, different um, sectors of society, uh, from artists, but also to local assemblies, um, alternative media practitioners, um, environmental educators, how they're using uh, arts and media to kind of counter the hegemonic narratives about development. Um, so it's quite a big project. Um, I'm just finishing the first part of it and hopefully we'll be able to continue it um, with some further questions about kind of the cultural logic of extractivism and get into some more theoretical debates. But for now it's been it's been a good um, year and a half of um, Doing interviews, uh, traveling quite a bit, um, talking to artists um, and local assemblies and and getting an idea of of the variety of um, practices that are happening in response to these hegemonic discourses and narratives that we hear in the media.
1: So uh, are you planning another book?
0: Yes, I am planning another book. Um, I think it's going to take a couple of years to write because I would like to do some more um, ethnographic research. But yes, I am planning a book um, and I'm hoping that would be in English and in Spanish.
1: Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr David Bryant and today I was talking to Dr Paula Serafini from the University of Leicester about performance action the politics of art activism.